Matthew 24, if you would, Matthew 24. Uh, locate that with me. This will be our third installment of this particular chapter. This is a two-chapter section that goes together that's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives about three-quarter of a mile away, looking over at Jerusalem. Um, as most of you, if you've been here either of the first two Sundays, you'll recognize that this is a passage that uh, has had my attention seeing it coming in the, fu in the future. Now we're finally here. Uh, I've been quite nervous about preaching this text. I've, I am not a prophecy guru, okay? Please understand. Uh, some preachers, th th this, this their thing, right? This is not something that I have spent my life delving into. Uh, my former pastor was a prophecy guru, so I did get to hear him. Uh, but this is kind of my first time of really digging and studying through Matthew 24 and this, and 24 and 25. This is probably the classic text in all of prophecy is this section. Uh, so thank you for joining with us. Uh, last week was really heavy for those of you that are, were here, right? It was really, really heavy and lots of information. And I had it suggested, why didn't we split that into two? I don't know, um, but that is why we review, okay? Uh, so today is going to be a little bit heavy as well, maybe not quite as much as last week. In a moment, I want to read verses 29 to 35, but let's go through a review because it, it's been a week, and I know there's some folks um, that haven't heard this or that may watch it later and be rusty and just jump in on this section. So here's where we're at. It's the Passion Week. It's Passover in Jerusalem. They'll put the Lord to death in two to three days. All of his public teaching is over. His last public teaching was to denounce the scribes and Pharisees and to pronounce judgment was coming to the nation of Israel because of multiple things. I won't revisit all of those, but they just rejected the truth and persecuted and even killed God's prophets that brought the truth and ultimately killed his son in the most cruel way they could think of. And so for that, judgment was coming. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 24, we can't go back and re-preach the two previous sermons, but it was so bad that Jesus told his disciples privately that the temple is not just going to be desolate of the presence of God. The temple was going to be destroyed. I mean, to the effect, totally demolished, not one stone would be left upon another. We, so here's a clue. We know when that happened. So Jesus made a major prediction that would have blown their mind. They took it literally because then they asked him a question. And the question in verse 3 of chapter 24 is what both of these chapters spring from. Jesus is answering three questions of his disciples. So here's the three questions back in verse 3. When will these things be? So they're asking about when will the temple be destroyed? They believe him. And they should because it did happen in A.D. 70. Forty years later, that happened exactly as Jesus said. So they want to know three questions. Number one, when will these things be? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Number three... The sign of the end of the age. They, as I've said before, they probably think this is all kind of a very closely related single event. It's going to happen like that. Little do they know how complex their question really was. Again, we know the first answer to the first question, 70 A.D., only 40 years later. But here we are 2,000 years later, still have not seen the full fulfillment of this text. I'm going to say it again. I'm not going to make it a note. This is, I made this note twice on purpose. We're not going to do it again, but I want to drive it into your mind. This is my belief, and I'm not the only one, 
There are multiple views on how to interpret Matthew 24 and 25. But I believe that these prophecies by Christ are very similar and much like some Old Testament prophecies. Well, these songs. I'm sorry. They get my nasal passages going when I start tearing up. And it affects me up here. Some Old Testament prophets would receive a revelation, make a prophecy, and then that prophecy sometimes would be fulfilled near to their lifetime, and yet it may have, this is key, a greater, fuller fulfillment in the future. And I believe that's what's happening here in our text. Specifically, verses 4 through 14, that's, go, that's been going on for 2,000 years. All the things that Jesus said in four to, verse 4 to 14. But last week especially, verse 15 to 28... I believe, saw that where there was a near fulfillment to the life of Christ, but there is also a distant, yet future to us, greater fulfillment. Can't re-preach the text. Can't even reread last week's text. But those of you that were here, remember what Jesus said. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place... Then he says to them, multiple directives, you need to flee to the mountains. Don't go to Jerusalem like your instincts will say. Flee the city, go to the mountains. And then he says, even if you're on the rooftop, this is going to be so urgent. If you're just on your kind of flat top roof like they had then, don't run down in the house and gather your things. Leave, get out, something's coming. If you left your coat on the other end of the field, don't go get your coat. Leave when you see this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Leave. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath. And if you're pregnant, it's going to be very tough. If you have a nursing child, it's going to be tough on you. Pray that it's not in the wintertime. Why? Because a great tribulation, according to verse 21, a great tribulation, such as has never been before, and then Jesus says, never will be, is coming. So you got to get out fast as you can. In fact, it's so bad that no human life would be saved if the Lord didn't shorten it. So we spent a long time in last week's passage, right? What makes us think, again, just reviewing quickly, what makes us think that some of that text was fulfilled near to the life of Christ and some of it has not yet been fulfilled? I won't go over all of the things again, but particularly this is a key, Luke's account of this. Luke, instead of writing, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, he says, when you see, Jesus says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then flee. And that seemed to line up with A.D. 70. The Roman army came and literally laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for, for six months. And that also seemed to match that, wow, what happened inside the city walls of Jerusalem during that siege for six months, the famine and, and death and disease, and again, when they finally breach through the walls and they just start slaughtering, 1.2 million Jews are on the inside 1.1 are killed, the other 100,000 are, are carried captive and spread out around the world as slaves. So it's never been as bad as that event in all of previous history. That seemed to match that. But then there were some other things that particularly, by the way, one thing that seemed to line up with this near fulfillment is that when Jesus gave the prophecy and he said, when you see this, Flee instead of running to the city. Very few Christians were inside the walls because it seems as Matthew, Mark, and Luke were circulating, Jesus' followers, unlike the rest of the Jews, they believed Christ's words and they left the city and they were spared. The last place you want to be was inside the city of Jerusalem. But, last thing before our reading the text, 
The other parts of the text that seems like it wasn't fulfilled at that point, it has to be yet future, is if you have your Bible open, look at verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, Jesus is saying when when this comes, it's going to be so bad that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God will shorten those days. Guys, that is too broad to be just what happened in AD 70 in the the city of Jerusalem. Even if everyone in Jerusalem, all 1.2 die, there's still other human beings living in the rest of the world. So this is obviously pointing to something yet future that is going to be so horrific, if God doesn't shorten it, there will be no more human life. The other thing, there were a couple other points, I'm not going to make those, but particularly is today's text. Jeff, why do you think this passage was not fully fulfilled in AD 70? Mainly because what we're getting ready to read in just a moment about the second coming of Christ. If that was the total fulfillment, then it should have led right into the second coming of Jesus, but it didn't. So AD 70 did not culminate in the second coming of Christ. So now with that as our backdrop, here's the thing. When will these things be with the temple? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is answering their questions in these two chapters. And now we read verse 29. Here we go. We're going to read down to verse 35. Immediately after the what? What's the next word? Immediately after the tribulation. So let me plan. We're going to take a note later. Not immediately after the abomination of desolation. Back in verse 15. Not immediately after that. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Like seven or eight things are going to start happening. So this is going to take a little time for these seven or eight things. We don't know how long is this weeks that we're talking about. Potentially, probably months covering all of it. We're probably talking about months that are taking place in, again, I'm jumping outside the text, a three and a half year period. We're toward the end of that three and a half year period now because it started with the abomination of desolation. If you missed last week, you need to go back and at least see, see that section on Daniel's prophecy. And I apologize for not being able to reteach it for time's sake. Back to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, here comes the list, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's a massive list. Sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars are falling, the whole powers in the heavens are going to be shaken. Everything's changed. Then will appear. Then. So there's immediately, and then here's another time word. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then, here's the next thing. All the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So there's going to be the sign of the Son of Man. People all around the world are weeping and wailing and crying because they're seeing this sign of the Son of Man. Then what happens? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Catch all these words. There's so much here, so many layers I won't have time to go into. They're going to see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All are going to see it, all the tribes of the earth. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Catch that. Loud trumpet call. That's the angels go. What are they doing? They will gather his elect from the four winds, four winds of the earth, all parts of the earth, from one end of heaven to the other, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So there's these seven or eight things are going to happen. And Jesus is talking about what we now know, this condensed time toward the end. 
Now, verse 32 to 35, we have a lesson that is coming to us. Jesus then tells his disciples, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. What's the lesson from the fig tree? Here's the lesson. As soon as its branch, you have a fig tree, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves. Now, I don't know how all that works. I'm not a botanist by any means, and I long forgot what science I learned back in high school, right? But apparently, something happens that the sap really starts filling up the branches, and they start getting tender, and they start popping out leaves. When you see that, verse 32, Jesus says, you know that summer is near. So learn the lesson from the fig tree. When you see its branches get tender and the leaves pop out, well, you know, oh, fig tree has leaves. It's almost summer. That's real easy. So verse 33, also when you, so why, why is he talking about the fig tree? So also when you see all these things, everything that he's been saying from verse 4 to now verse 33, can I say particularly verse 15 to 33? So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near. You want the answer to the question? I, I think he has answered about the destruction of the temple. Now we want to know about <coughs> the sign of your coming. He's been giving that. And you want to know about the end of the age? When you see all these things, you'll know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, and in the most controversial, what causes so many difficulties for interpreters is verse 34. Still rolling through the text, Jesus says, this is, he hasn't stopped. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven, so he's saying, he says, this generation will not pass away. Now verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven will pass away. Earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away until they see these things, until these things take place. Let's notice two things. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. 75% of the message is in this first point. Write this thought down. It's pretty clear to me, the signs of Christ coming, verses 29 to 31. That's where we're going to focus most of our energy this morning. The signs of Christ coming. What are the signs of Christ coming? Now, before I do that, guys... I've got to at least touch on something for a few minutes, and I'm going to confess to you, when I was studying this a few weeks ago, I thought this was going to be a whole point. I literally had typed out what I'm about to talk about as a point because I really thought, man, there's going to be all this great stuff that I'm going to have to build this point, and hey, maybe it means this, and maybe it means that, and as I got into it, uh, it's not strong enough for a point, but I don't want to totally just ignore it. You say, what are you talking about? Write this down. Some people believe that even verse 29 to 31 is still talking about and pointing to A.D. 70. Pause right there. Hey, barely this way. There are people that are reading this text. When you say the abomination, there's going to be this bad tribulation. You better get out fast as you can. They're going to try to lure you out by saying, look, the Christ is over here and he's over there. Don't you go out. Don't go out. Don't believe him. Jesus is saying, I'll make it plain when it's time. Don't you go and then he's saying all these things are going to happen. There are people who read verses 29, those seven, eight things, and they think, yep, that's still talking about A.D. 70. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering, did all those things happen in A.D. 70? Oh, no, no, it didn't. But here's how they interpret it, okay? They think it does point to A.D. 70 because it is only symbolic language that is speaking about the major upheaval and reversals that are going to take place in A.D. 70 at the destruction of the temple 
when political things and social things and religious things are totally flipped and reversed. That is a literal view that is believed by a lot of theologians. If you're taking that note, again, all that cosmic language in verse number 29, they think, yeah, that didn't happen literally. That's just symbolic language. You say, why would they think that way? I'm going to give you the reason in a moment. They have a reason why they're doing this that compels them to do this with this text. You say, well, well what does it even mean? I mean, it's, by the way, let me pause. As we read that a while ago, did y'all's mind think, yep, that's, that's the Romans surrounding Jerusalem. That's when they destroyed the temple. All these things probably happened in the sky and sign of Jesus and the sending out of the angels to gather the elect. And if you're like me, you're going, how in the world do they arrive at this? All right, here's their thought. Some Old Testament prophets use apocalyptic language and again, I haven't studied all these passages, but they think that they use this apocalyptic language in a symbolic way that's just pointing to like major overturn in the political world or a major overturn in the religious world. Here's the idea. i got to go quicker. The thought is this. When the temple is destroyed, it's going to like set the world, their world on its end. It's going to be as if... The sky has fallen. It's like the sun's not the same. The moon's not the same. The stars are falling. Just the powers of the heavens, are, everything's out of place now because the temple, the, the physical temple that had all of its sacrifices and formality has been replaced by this one sacrifice of Christ. That's, that's the mentality. The social order has been just disruptive and the political order and especially the religious order God's focus is no longer on the nation of Israel. It's now on the church for a period of time. That's Israel focus. And it's like just, man, it's like the whole world has changed. And that's just figurative language. Okay. You say, well, Jeff, isn't that a pretty good point? Maybe they haven't. Well, I cannot. I'm telling you, I can't go through this whole text. There's like five or six things. I just had to delete for time's sake. I'm like, well, then how do you explain that and that and that? Look, if you would, look at verse 30. Look at it. Let's just pretend, oh, it's symbolic language. It's not literal. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When did that happen? What does it mean? Here's their answer. You remember back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, 500 years before this, has this prophecy of, I see one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the Father. The one like the Son of Man is the Christ. So I see this Christ, the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him power and authority and dominion. Right? To rule and to reign. And that's all this is talking about. And I'm like, what? You guys are jumping through theological hoops for no reason. Because, again, I'm thinking, when did all the world see that happen? That has already happened back at the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Jesus has already received dominion and authority from the ancient of days of the Father. Why are you guys wanting to put it here? So that bothers me. There's several other. Look at verse 31. This one bothered me. This irks me, right? Verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. How do you explain that? Here's their answer. Well, angels here can be messengers, and all this is really talking about is missionary efforts that have been made uh, following A.D. 70. Missionaries go out, and we share the gospel, and we're trying to bring in the elect into the spiritual kingdom of God. And it's like, nah, that's just not it. I have a lot of questions there. Wasn't that already going on before? What loud trumpet call 
initiated sudden new versions of missionary outreach after AD 70. It, it isn't there. They're reaching and grasping. I'll tell you why in a moment. But before that, I want you to say, Jeff, why are you chasing this rabbit a little bit? Here's why. In fact, as we're doing this, I hope you'll understand because just as some people do that, some of us in the room right now have views where we do the same thing that they do. And you'll know it when you get mad at me for pointing it out here in just a few moments, one thing, or at the end of the message, something else, and everything in you is going to be like, I, that's not what I believe. And, but I challenge you to think, why do you believe what you believe? Because I read it in a book somewhere. Watch out. We do this stuff all the time. I want you to write this thought. The symbolic view of this passage reminds us of the dangers. Some of you that were here a year ago on Wednesday night, you're going to say, uh-oh, this sounds familiar. The symbolic view of this text reminds us of the dangers of allegorizing and spiritualizing passages in God's Word, trying to find meanings in the passage that are apart from literal meanings. There is a danger in doing that. You say, Jeff, does the Bible never use symbolic and figurative language? Guys, I'm telling you right now, it does use that, but it will make it plain that it is doing that. Jesus says, tell that fox Herod something. Jesus is not saying Herod is a literal fox. He's saying he acts like a fox. Yes, the Bible uses figurative language. Finish your note. The symbolic view here reminds us of the dangers of allegorizing and spiritualizing texts of Scripture. There there's people in the room right now. I don't know who you are. I promise I don't. But I'll guarantee you in the room, when you read the Bible, you start looking for the, the hidden, symbolic, mysterious, allegorical meaning of the text. Spiritualizing the text instead of reading the text as a literal document that the human author at that time and God both had a point they were trying to make. My point this morning is read the Bible literally unless it is clearly saying that it is a figurative language. People read that section, verse 29, they don't like it. And so we're just saying, that's just symbolic language. That's not really going to happen. Didn't really happen. Well, that's dangerous ground. Why? Because it opens up to very subjective and personal interpretations. That completes the note. So I think you'll be able to fill it in there. The problem with allegorizing and spiritualizing text is that it opens the door for very personal, what do you think it means? Oh, I, I think it means this. And what do you think? Well, I think it means this. Guys, our job in our Bible studies is not to get together and think, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? It's the, here's, here's the thing. What does it say? What does it mean? And then after that, now, Lord, how does it apply to me? A lot of people want to jump right into, how does it apply to me? And give me my little nugget for my devotions this morning, looking for some allegory and spiritual meaning. I'm going to make somebody mad right here, and I'm not doing it on purpose. I promise. Have you ever read Revelation? Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Do you remember the beginning, chapter 2 and 3? Jesus reveals to John, and he gives John these seven letters to the seven churches, and they're little five, six, seven, eight verse sections where he brags on them. I know you do this and that and that and that, but and all but two of them. But I also have a problem with you, church, this church, that church, because you do this and that and that, or you don't do that. You remember that whole section? Uh, ESPTSPL. That's how I learned it in Bible college. You have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, if I Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. 
So these seven letters are written to these seven churches. Guys, I want to tell you something. You know how some people teach that? When they get to that section, they start going. And the Bible says this to the church at Ephesus and this to the church at Smyrna and this to the church at Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and the Laodicean church. And here's what they do. They jump immediately to church history and they start saying, now the Ephesian church, what Jesus was saying in church history from this point to this point, these are all the characteristics of the Ephesian church. And that's what happened in church history. And jump ahead a few hundred years and then there was the church of Smyrna and all those things happened there and this and that. And here's where they always end up we're living in the in the Laodicean age right we're in the age of Laodicean some of y'all right now going aren't we you see what they do they spiritualize and allegorize everything so that we're living in the last and this is a timeline hey that may be a fine pattern and application that we may find that fits if you kind of twist a few things and stuff a few things you may find that you say Jeff if that's not the meaning then what is it there was a real church in Ephesus like there's a real church at Graceview. And they had all these good things that were going on, but they lost their first love. That's the interpretation. There was a real church in a city called Smyrna. It would be like Jesus saying, hey, Church of Anderson, I know you're doing this and this and this, but I got a problem. Keep that up, but I got a problem that you're not doing this and this and this. It's a lit- there were seven literal churches. You ever heard this? David and Goliath. David goes off to fight Goliath. What does he do? He stops by the brook and he picks up five smooth stones. You ever heard preaching on the five smooth stones? I have. And they go into that preacher. Boy, let me tell you today about the five smooth stones. I'm going to give you the spiritual allegorical meaning of the five smooth stones. Now, the first stone that David picked up, and they're going to give you the five S's or the five D's or the five I-O-N's. And then the fifth one. The fifth one is the key when you're facing your giants in life. You've got to have the fifth stone. You say, Jeff, if that's not it, then what's the meaning? Here's the meaning. David knew how to use a sling. There's a big nine-foot-nine guy over there. He's going to go fight him. So on the way, he picks up five smooth stones, and he uses one and kills him. We don't need to allegorize and spiritualize the five smooth stones. There's six water pots, and Jesus filled six water pots at the wedding of Cana. And the water was in there, and he turned the water to wine. Now, the water, the, now the, the pot means this, and the stone means this. And it's like, really? Where's that in the text? Because I just thought it meant he used six water pots. Where does it say all the stuff, all the symbolism you're using? Watch out for people who are constantly using numerology. And the number 17 means this in the Bible. I've never read that. Careful. People love to. I agree more with what J.C. Ryle writes. And I realize I've chased a rabbit a long time. He writes, if, so we're talking about these three verses. If the solemn words used here, if they mean nothing more than the coming of the Roman armies to Jerusalem, then we may explain away anything in the Bible. Did you catch that? If we're reading 29 to 31 and all that stuff's happening and all we do is say that's just symbolic language already been fulfilled in AD 70. If that's all it means, Ryle is correct. We can explain anything. By the way, I've read some commentaries that do that. You don't like something over here? That's just spiritual. Jesus doesn't really mean it. What you don't like, you just allegorize it and spiritualize it. Blows it away. All right, last thing I'm going to say on this point. Then Jeff, why do they do it? Why are they, why are they all caught up in doing this? Look down at verse 34, and you'll see why they feel so compelled. Here's why they do. I'm going to give you two reasons. 
Verse 34, Jesus is still talking, unbroken. We have paragraph division. He's just talking. He says, truly, so remember he's talking to them in 30 A.D., Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, until all, all these things that's been said beforehand. So here's why they jump through the theological hoops. Well, we know that it has to happen all from verse 34 before it, from 4 to 34, has to happen in the lifetime of the group of people that Jesus was talking to. And that seems to point to AD 70, and those people have long died. Nobody's been living for 2,000 years, so it has to be that. And so... I realize verse 29 to 31 causes huge problems for this view, so we're just going to say that it's symbolic language. I'm going to give you the other reason, because here's a note I want to give you on it. Another big reason why people don't, okay, I can kind of understand, wow. So you know you got to end here, so to get there, you're willing to go through that, to reach that. Okay, I don't see that, but I understand at least your problem. But here's, here's what also takes place. A lot of people that teach and preach the Bible have a problem here. They lack a belief that God would really literally do what verse number 29 says. They don't think, that, no, no, God doesn't mean that. He's talking about political and religious upheaval when the temple was destroyed, how it just changed everything. Because they think, look at verse 29, immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's not God. And you're probably thinking, well, aren't there other passages? Guys, you don't have to leave this passage to find the answer. It's verse 35. It's crystal clear. You may not take it literally, but Jesus says, oh yeah, verse 29 is really going to happen because heaven and earth will pass away. It is going to pass away. And if you want to label me as one of those literal Bible guys, I'll take it. That's, that's the way I read the Bible. Unless it is clear we're to not take it literally. Write this thought, some people's default when they read the Bible is to just explain away the miraculous. One of my commentaries that I read, and he has some great stuff sometimes, but I declare he's already passed away now. Otherwise, I, sometimes, I could, sometimes I just want to just be, give him a big old hug because he just showed me something. Other times I just want to choke him, William Barkley. <laughs> like, ah, he always wants to explain away the miraculous or the catastrophic. That's just symbolic. Careful. Don't do that. Let the Bible say what it says. Now let's get into the proper view of this text. I'm not telling, by saying what I just said, I'm not saying that I have all the exact answers, but we are to take this as a literal event that's coming. Would you peek back? At verse 27 and 28. Would you peek back there? Jesus says, Now as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming. He's answering the question. Your question is, when will these things happen with the temple? He's given a, a description and that had a near fulfillment. But what he's also talking about is going to have a greater distant fulfillment in the yet-to-come tribulation. And so Jesus is connecting. You want to know about my coming in connection with that? For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, remember when you see vultures flying around, or you see vultures hopping ahead up in the road in front of you, you know there's a corpse there. So what Jesus is saying is, follow, my coming is going to be very, very visible, and it's going to be clearly obvious. It's going to be really obvious. And now, verse 29 to 31, gives us the signs of what makes it so clear. That's what verse 29 and 31 is. Look at this list. Oh, by the way, verse 29, I want to start right there. Notice the first two words because I already pointed it out earlier. 
immediately after, immediately after the tribulation. Write this thought. Those two words, immediately after the tribulation, do not refer to after the abomination of desolation in verse 15. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when you see that standing in the holy place, then he goes on to this thing. Then he says, great tribulation is going to happen. And then he says, after that. So here's the rest of your note. Immediately after does not refer to immediately after the abomination of desolation, verse 15. Instead, it refers to after the great tribulation in verse 21. Say, Jeff, what's the big deal? Because, guys, there's almost nearly a three and a half year gap between those two things. So here's the timeline. You're going to see the abomination of desolation. We know from Daniel and Revelation of the passages, there's going to then be three and a half years of great tribulation. And then he say basically what he's saying... At the end, toward the end, after all this tribulation, then you're going to see these other signs start taking place. Guys, we know this is literal because everything Jesus says in verse 29 to 31 has a counterpart or multiple counterparts in the book of Revelation. Can we track just a few of those down? Keep your pens flowing. So we're going to find the specific matches and equivalents. Here's what I'm saying. Those three verses in Matthew 24 take chapters and chapters and chapters to unpack in the book of Revelation. So I want to find some of those just to show you as a proof text, not again delving into the book of Revelation anyway, just to show you like, oh, looks like it's there too. That's surely what Jesus is talking about. Let's start with these. What's happened with the sun, moon, and stars? The sun, moon, and stars. So as you write that note, we're making our way over to Revelation chapter number 6. We're going to look at something, and by the way, I probably didn't find all of them, guys. Thursday, I was literally just flipping through and thinking, man, I just read, I just read the book of Revelation just a month ago in my devotions, and I remember seeing some of these things. I'm just thinking, wow, I've got this list. Sun, moon, and stars, power of the heavens are shaken, tribes are mourning, son of the man, son of man coming on the clouds. That sounds like a lot of the stuff, but I forget where it's at, so I just start, oh, there's right there, that fits that. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Here's a possible fulfillment of verse 29 in Matthew. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, we're just saying he is worthy, he is worthy. Who's worthy to open the book? Only Jesus. What is this scroll, right? Oh, boy, I could get lost in this. When Jesus opens the sixth seal, something happens. So there's a scroll, a document, right, that is rolled up and... Jesus is the one who comes along and is worthy. But it has seven seals inside of it. Oh, there's a seal, the first one. Got to break that seal. And you go a little bit and you see, you can read that. Break the next seal and you can read that. Keep breaking. There are seven of these seals. So Jesus comes along. So here's the key. You're probably thinking, hold on. Isn't chapter 6 a little early out of 22 chapters to be at the end of the Toward the end, after all this tribulation, isn't this a little early? Well, two things I'm going to say. One is we're going to look at chapter 6, and we'll see another op- a possibility in chapter 8. But look at, er, at verse 12. I'm talking fast, and I'm covering some stuff that it may spark a thought. And I apologize that I don't have time to us just to make this like a, a three-week thing. We don't. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal. What does that mean? Five have already been opened. Hey, guys, listen. This helps if you're familiar with the Revelation. There's going to be seven seal judgments. Break one, something happens. Break another, something happens. 
the seal judgments probably take years. But as you get to the seventh seal, we're about to read the sixth one. As you get to the seventh seal, its judgment is actually seven angels with seven trumpets. Angel one blows his trumpet, something happens. Two, three, four. After the seven trumpets, it's still not over because seven angels have bowls, vials, and they're going to pour out. What, what it seems like is the trumpet and, and bowl judgments all happen close together so that even though we're, we're only in chapter 6, this doesn't seem, this, this seems to be toward the beginning. No, this is still toward the end. Things have been happening. Five have already passed. Now look one more time. I'm going to actually go through it. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. How? As fig trees shed in winter fruit, sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So the sun is black like sackcloth, the moon like blood. It's not its normal. And then the stars are falling. And again, things from outer space are flying through and they're having this light and they're apparently hitting the earth. Things are going crazy. Flip over one chapter to chapter eight. Look over to chapter eight. We're past the seven seal judgments. We're toward the end of the three and a half years. And now we're jumping into verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet. We're now in the third trumpet judgment. The third, verse 10, at chapter 8, verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. So we're talking about sun, moon, and stars. Yes, what Jesus says has fulfillment here in Revelation also. Revelation just unpacks that. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers. This is real events. This is extremely scary. And it fell on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, which means bitter. A third of the waters became, third of the waters in the world became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Here comes the fourth angel. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. What happened? A third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon, I think it means it's light. I think it's pretty clear. A third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. So, boy, it'd take a long time to unpack. But I think it's pretty clear to say what Jesus says in Matthew 24. John receives a revelation of the same things happening. Write this next thought. What about the powers of heaven shaken in Matthew 24, verse 29? The powers of heaven are shaken. You're still in Revelation. After you've written that thought, look over to, no, back to chapter 6. Back to chapter 6. Revelation 6. So we're still in that sixth seal. So do you remember verse 13? The stars are falling like figs being blown off of a tree. Just, just falling. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Like something has been compromised. Whatever is above is no longer there protecting us. The idea. And then in addition to that, he says, every mountain and island was removed from its place. All these crazy things. The powers of the heavens are shaken. Write this thought down. Jesus says that the tribes of the earth will mourn. The tribes of the earth are going to mourn. Is that found in? Well, of course it is. Look back at chapter 1 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, quickly. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, by the way, has multiple things in it. So please note the others. Revelation 1, look at verse 7. It's talking about Jesus here in the context. I don't have time to read verse 5 and 6. 
Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. I want you to remember that. I won't have time to come back here. And every eye will see him. And that sounds just like Matthew 24. Even those who pierced him. Y'all help me out. What group of people pierced the Lord? The Jews. With the help of the Romans. But particularly it's talking about the Jews. Who's going to see him? Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail, weep, cry, mourn on account of him when they see him. Even so, amen, John says. Now, flip from there and you'll see it also back in chapter 6. One more time, chapter 6. We're still in that sixth seal. And look at verse 15. It doesn't use the word mourning, but I think you sense their mourning and wailing and all the anguish of soul that is going on as a result of the things that are happening. Verse 15 of chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the kings, the great, I mean the powerful people, the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free. What's happening? Guys, this is a real event. This is coming. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Apparently, they're aware of God seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, please, rocks fall around us. Build up something where we don't have to see what's taking place. They are mourning. They're wailing. They're, they're extremely sorrowful. Why? Because verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath, the one on the throne, which is God the Father, and the Lamb, which is Christ, for their wrath has come. And who can stand? The tribes of the earth are weeping and wailing and mourning. Write this last one down as a... Um, as an equivalent out of Matthew 24, is the Son of Man coming on clouds. You already saw it in chapter 1, verse 7. Now, you're still in Revelation. So we already saw it in chapter 1, verse 7. Now look at chapter 14 of Revelation. Here's just one. Here's just one. It's one that I ran into. So I typed it down, right? Revelation 14, verse 14. John says... Guys, this is really going to happen. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Guys, that's none other than Jesus Christ coming back to reap and harvest. And by the way, there's going to be a double reaping and harvesting. There's going to be a reaping and harvesting of grain, which is the saved, and there's going to be a reaping and harvesting of grapes that are going to be put in the, in the wine vat. And they're going to be stomped out and tread and the blood is going to flow. So he's got his sickle, he has his crown, and he's coming on a cloud. Mm, sounds a lot like Matthew 24. Now watch. Well, maybe, well, maybe, Matthew, maybe Revelation's also talking about what happened in A.D. 70. We know it can't be. Why? Why can Revelation not be talking about A.D. 70? Why? Because it was written 25. Take that note. Revelation was written at least 25 years after A.D. 70. So we know. Do you get my point that I just made? What Jesus is saying is literally going to happen. It has counterparts all through the book of Revelation, which was written well after A.D. 70. So we don't look at A.D. 70 as the fulfillment of this text. Now back to Matthew. Matthew 24. Here we go. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Watch this phrase. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Hey, guys. What is keeping all of that? 
from happening right now? What's key? The powers of heaven are shaken, and apparently because of the powers of heaven shaken, that's allowing all these things to happen to our, our planet. Why doesn't that happen right now? Something's keeping it from happening. Why can they tell a hundred years from now that a comet is going to come through here? Because there's order. There's order in the universe. There's system. There's, it runs on a time. That thing will be back in 200 and some years because that's the way it runs. But now we're talking about something is allowed to happen in the universe that everything's chaotic. Do y'all remember from the Christmas message in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3? What is holding it all together? Better yet, specifically, who is holding it all together? Jesus. How? By the word of his power. Apparently what Jesus is saying is, I'm holding it all together right now, keeping these things from happening. I don't have to do anything. I just have to stop doing that. And I just have to relax. And when he relaxes, wild, crazy things like it's never happened in the history of the world is going to happen. That's why verse 22 says, if the Lord doesn't shorten it, there'll be no human life on the planet. Hey, flip over. You got Mark's account, but flip over to Luke's. I'm going to go there twice today. Flip over to Luke 21. I want you to see something because he puts a, a little additional thing. Remember, not every gospel writer writes everything. Luke 21. Look at verse 25. Well, this kind of jumped at me the other day. Luke 21, 25. So this is the same thing he's talking about. It's Luke's version of it. Verse 25. And there will be signs. Jesus is talking. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. Luke's, he just cuts short. He doesn't give all the details. Watch this though. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting. That fainting is a strong word. One commentator talked about it probably means people literally dying from what? With fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Why? For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What are they distressed and perplexed and fainting and fearful and foreboding about? Look at the specific phrase in verse 25. Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. If these things are happening like figs falling off of a tree in the midst of a gale and stuff's just hitting our planet, where will it likely hit? Because our planet is mostly covered with water, then it's mo some will no doubt hit the land, but apparently much of it's going to hit the sea. And when stuff starts hitting the sea, we're thinking, whew, well, at least the ocean was there today. Yeah, but think about all the tsunamis that are going to be caused. And people are fearful, and it just like keeps happening and happening, and the waves are roaring, and they don't know to worry about that or that. This hit me yesterday morning. Could this be why Jesus says, when you see this stuff happening, flee to the mountains. Go to the mountains. That's going to be the safest place. Because wild things are going to start happening. Mike Sturgill pointed this out two weeks ago. He said, boy, if somebody's not a Christian and they just pop in just to check us out, and you're, you're doing all they probably think we're like nutso. <laughs> Look at verse 30. Matthew 24. Verse 30. I'm never going back over there. Those people, they got the craziest, wildest beliefs. Especially that guy that talks for an hour and something. He's, he's the worst. Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All these cosmic things. Y'all with me? 
Then there's going to be the sign of the Son of Man. Two possibilities at least. What does that mean? Guys, it could mean just as simple as we don't know specifically, but there's going to be something in the sky, in the atmosphere, or in the sky, that is an emblem or a banner, an indicator that, that, that Jesus is coming. It could mean that. But what if, what if, just look at verse 30, it's simpler. Watch. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Not just, oh yeah, there's the sign of the Son of Man, like Batman's emblem in the sky. It might mean something like that, but what if it's simpler than that? Then, Jesus says, then after all that, here's what's going to happen. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What if Jesus is saying, you want to know the answer to your question, your three questions? Here's the second one. The absolute number one clearest way you'll know that I'm coming back is when you see me. I'm the sign. I'm the sign. When you see me in the sky, look at the end of verse 30. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's just told them back in verse 27, 28, verse 26 and, and, and 28. Watch. When they say, the Messiah's over here and the Christ is over here. No, the Christ over there. He's in the inner room. He's out in the wilderness. Don't you believe it? Guys, I think what he's saying, when you see my great glory, there'll be no doubt that it's me. There'll be no doubt that it's me. And then you'll be glad. I got to hit one more thing before I talk about that being glad. Verse 30, right in the middle. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are these people mourning? Why? People mourn for different reasons. I want to offer at least two. Number one, and we'll track this down quickly. Many wicked people will refuse to repent. And they will only mourn because of fear of more judgment coming. You say, what's going to happen when this emblem in the sky or Christ himself and all this power and glory, great glory, it clears day, it's him. What's going to happen? Hey, guys, I don't understand why, but there's going to be many, many wicked people who just absolutely refuse to repent, and they're going to be fearful and mourning because more judgment is coming, and they can't stop it. So where are you getting this idea they're not going to repent? Look at Revelation. Hold, so hold your spot over where we were. Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. Look at verse number 9. This blows my mind. How is this possible? So now we're past the trumpet judgments. We're, we're past the seal judgments. We're now down at the bowl judgments. And we're at the fifth one, right? No, I'm, we're, at, we're in the middle of the fourth one. I left off verse 8. I'll, I'll read verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl, his bowl judgment, on the sun. And the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. So verse 9, they were scorched. This is really going to happen, guys. This is so sad. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. That's not a good idea. They did, they did not repent and give him glory. It still continues in the fifth angel pouring out his bowl of judgment. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist. And its kingdom, the beast's kingdom, was plunged into darkness. I mean, like bad darkness, like the darkness that caused pain to the Egyptians, apparently. People gnawed their tongues. They gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Some people will not repent, but they're going to mourn and cry and be in anguish because more judgment's coming. But there's another group that will mourn. And this is a good thing. 
Go to the Old Testament. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. Praise the Lord for this group that mourns. Because Jesus already said, when they see the sign and when they see him, there's going to be mourning. All the tribes of the earth will be mourning. Look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. I've got to go quickly, so hopefully you find it in a moment. Verse 9. Zechariah predicts, he sees this prophecy. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So people are coming. The Antichrist is coming to exterminate the Jews. Apparently, some have even offered that other nations are coming to fight the Antichrist's army. And while they're coming to fight the Antichrist's army, and he's there closing in on the Jews, uh uh-oh, this thing happens in the sky. We better unite against that. So verse 9 of Zechariah 12 On that day, the Lord says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But verse 10, praise the Lord. And the Jews do not receive Jesus right now. On the whole, there's a few, just a single remnant here and there. But this is a real event that Paul talked about in Romans 11. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I skipped my note, but here's your thought. The Jews are going to look on Christ, so they're refusing to repent, but the Jews will recognize that's him whom we pierce. They will feel sorrow for their sin, and they will repent, and they will desire to go to Christ as their great deliverer, and he will deliver them. Praise, and they will be saved. All the Jews that make it to that point in time will be saved. They'll trust Christ as their Messiah. While you're finishing that, Go back, I told you we'd hit one more thing in Luke. Go back to Luke 21. I want to catch one more verse. Because this encouraged me the other day. This this thought hit me. It's super simple, super, super simple. Again, Luke's condensed version. Luke 21. So earlier we saw verse 25. There'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. There's the distress of the nations in perplexity because of the waves. Skip down to verse 28 because the other gospels didn't write this part. Jesus, aren't you glad that Luke included this? Jesus says, now when these things begin to take place, he's telling his followers, he's telling his disciples, and it applies to the people that it's going to affect that they're alive at this time. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When you see him, then straighten up. You've been beat down. Antichrist has been persecuting you, beat down. When you see this stuff happening, well, then you can straighten up and get ready to come out of hiding because your redemption, your salvation is very near. What Jesus is saying is, when you see me, I'm getting ready to tear them up, and you come to me. In fact, the angels will bring you to me. I like what MacArthur wrote. Oh, by the way, write this thought. You remember verse 29? Everybody with me? Verse 29, wacko crazy stuff happening. When you start seeing that, And the tribes mourning and all the people mourning. And then you see this emblem? Straighten up. Here's the thought. When things are at the absolute worst they've ever been in the history of the world. I mean, it's absolute worst it's ever been. Jesus tells his people, take comfort. It's about to be the absolute best that it's ever been. You mark it down. It's the worst ever. Oh, no, it's, it's getting worse and worse. It's just building and building. But when you see Christ, whoo, 
It's almost, it's about time. It's going to be better than it's ever been. That's a great moment. MacArthur words it this way. This is a good quote. He writes, get the picture. Until the Lord appears in that predicted and unquestionable way, those who, you ought to pay attention. Until that moment when he appears real clear, those who are hiding should remain where they are. After the true Christ appears, however, his people and his enemies will exchange places, as it were. Those who had been hiding in mountains and caves will be released to freedom and blessing, and their would-be captors and murderers will themselves seek refuge as the righteous wrath of God replaces and punishes the evil wrath of man and of Satan. That's a great quote. Here's, what, here's my people been being beat down. You get the kind of the three really difficult things that are happening in the tribulation. It's kind of three categories. God's people are going to be persecuted and martyred. Many of them will be martyred and telling you, dying, painful deaths, but they'll stay faithful. That's going to be, the Antichrist is just killing and persecuting and hunting down and trying to fake them. Come on out. Oh, over here's your Messiah so they can kill them. Don't, don't fall for it. A second kind of thing is all this stuff that's happening around the whole world, and here's what I don't know, is that only going to affect the unsaved and wicked? Or are the, the true followers of God experiencing all those same things? Probably. But the third category, and this is the one that you don't want to experience this, is this day of the Lord. When Jesus Christ comes back, it will be an especially bloody kind of tribulation and judgment when he pours out his wrath on the wicked that have been persecuting his people. My people have been here. They've been here. Yeah, it's about to switch. It's going to get good. Back to Matthew. Quickly, and I told you, so this is last thoughts here. Matthew 24, look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. So remember, they'll see him. The sign. People are mourning. Then they'll see him coming. Power, great glory. And then, verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Can we just have Mark uh, up on the screen? Look at Mark 13, verse 27. Can y'all see that? Look at this, because I'm going to make a point here. It's the last point on, on, verse, on our first point this morning. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Christ comes, his sign, people are mourning, then he's coming in power and great glory. Then he sends his angels to gather the elect. Who are these people, guys? The Bible is very clear, and if you were to include in that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. What this is teaching is that all of God's elect people from all ages, all over the earth, and all over heaven, they're coming with him, and these are getting ready to join him. You get the picture? He's gathering all the elect. You say, hold on, Jeff, what you just said there is kind of confusing to me. And some of your minds are thinking about, okay, but Jeff, you hadn't used the R word today. You hadn't talked about the rapture. Okay, well, I'm not ready to talk about the rapture, and it's not part of this discussion. I'm sure the day will come up, but I am going to say this much. 
There are three views on the rapture. Some, by the way, good godly people differ on this, just like what we've been talking about. Some believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Post means what? After. So they believe the tribulation, the seven year, the Antichrist makes a contract with the nation of Israel. Halfway through, he breaks the contract, reveals, man, he's not who we thought he was. Some good godly people believe in a post-tribulation, all God's elect, if you're alive, us, you go through it if you're there. And then at this moment, verse 31, the angels gather us. We go up to be with the Lord. He brings them with him. Their bodies go up. So there's the post-tribulation. Others believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. In other words, God's people will go through the first three and a half years, but they're not the worst things. That's those first seals. But then as we get to there where the, where the Antichrist is made known there and the abomination of desolation, then God raptures out the true saints. And then there is the pre-tribulation, which before any of those seven years, we're gone. And our, our exit and the seven-year contract with the nation of Israel that Daniel talked about, that's what kicks off the whole seven years. Thankfully, we're out of all of that. Okay? Well, I know as I say that, that some here, you're like, well, I believe that. And I might could see that. I definitely don't believe that. I'm not going to make their case, but I will say this. I'm not trying to scare you. I'd not be doing my job if I wouldn't point this out. Those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, I think, if I were in that position, I would point to verse 31 where it says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Guys, there's only four or five passages in the New Testament that talk about the rapture. We're talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, possibly John 14, and a veiled possible thing there in the book of Revelation early on. And I know some prophecy people are going, blah, 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 there's more than that. Don't say it's a veiled. It's clear. Like, okay, whatever you see. Okay. I'm telling you the things that are pretty clear. Here's what I'm telling you. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, they both talk about a trumpet being affiliated with the calling up. The last trumpet. Like, you got these seven trumpets perhaps? Or yeah, this is a whole separate... All I'm saying is before you blow away a belief, you might want to check in. You say, well, what about these people who believe in the mid-tribulation? Thessalonians says that which is holding back the Antichrist has to be taken out of the way. And, and, and then he's able to be revealed when he's revealed. Is the Antichrist really revealed at the start of the tribulation? Is he really revealed for who he is? Or is he revealed at the middle of the tribulation? Careful just dismissing before you really give a thought. So Jeff, where do you stand? Number three. Point number two this morning. I'm just going to leave it with you. Ha <laughs> ha. That's mean, ain't it? And this is where you want us like, well, tell us we don't have to go through this we got to keep studying. we got a lot to do. One of these days, the Lord will take us through Thessalonians and Corinthians and Revelation. Well, I don't know about Revelation. Lord, you will do me a great favor if I never have to preach through Revelation. <laughs> would not bother me. Hey, let's go. We're going to fly through verse 32 to 35. Let's read it quickly. So here's the second point, a lesson from the fig tree. A lesson from the fig tree. Getting ready to make some folks upset. Please understand, you might be right. You very well might be right, but I'm just going to kind of say, and be careful. Verse 32, Jesus says, From the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out 
its leaves, you know that summer is near. Is that, hey, is that complicated? Hey, when you see the fig trees coming out on, uh, on the, the leaves coming out on the fig tree, you know it's summertime. Summer's right there. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And then he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You see verse 32? Have you heard this? We have. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And this generation will not pass away. Guys, here's a very common thing. And I'm not trying to make anybody upset. I'm just telling you, it's not my view. Have you heard this? Well, two or three times in the Bible, the nation of Israel is represented by the fig tree. And so here's what, here's what some folks do. They do the same theological gymnastics that some folks do to make verse 29 to 31 fit AD 70. Here's, what, here's, what, here's how it goes. I, I probably will not be able to articulate it properly. Here's how it goes. The nation of Israel is the fig tree. Where does it say that? Take my word for it. The nation of Israel is the fig tree. And this budding, when you see its tender plant putting out the leaves... That stands for when the nation of Israel flourishes and reflourishes, and it's reinstated as a nation among the nations. And that happened in 1948. That is true. The nation of Israel was reinstated as a nation in 1948. And so what they do is they take verse 32, and they couple it with verse 34. This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. So here's, here's the jump. Here's the connection. This is what some people call systematic theology. It's where you take a verse here and a verse there and a thought here and thought there and connect it and make a whole system of theology. And it goes like this. The nation of Israel is the fig tree. They were reinstated in 1948. That's when they bloomed. And so this generation will not pass away. And what that means is the generation that was in Israel, the Jews, in 1948, they'll not pass away until Christ comes back. That's the thought. And so many were teaching generations about 20 years. So he's got to come back by 1968. And then that didn't happen. 30 years, some generation, you've got to think of it as 30 years, so you've got to come back by 1978. But the real big ones even sold books, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Has to Come Back in 1988, because the generation is 40 years. So he's got to come back by 1988. And now here's apparently where they're at. Okay, that didn't actually happen. So here's what that means. None of them, any little child born in Israel in 1948, any little Jewish boy or girl anywhere on the planet, they can't die until Jesus comes back. And so if we say the longest living person is going to live 120 years, Jesus has to come back before 2068. And that's where all God's people go, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't see that it has to happen that way. That's just making some things up. It doesn't say. I, I think France is right. R.T. France, he writes the following. This is simply a proverb type saying which draws a simile from observation of the natural world. Big trees put out leaves. Hey, summer's almost here. When you see all this stuff happening, then you know he's at the very gate. It's time. You say, Jeff, what's your view of chapter 24 thus far? That massive note you're about to write is my view. I'll give it and you'll have to go home and unpack it. It seems to me that verses 4 through 14, you'll know he's near. This is when you'll know he's near. It seems to me that verses 4 through 14 give a general expectation of the time period from A.D. 30. Why do I choose that? Because that's when Jesus said it. 
So Jesus is talking somewhere around A.D. 29, 30, 31. Apparently, this was the first message we preached on. Verses 4 through 14 give a general expectation, description of the time from A.D. 30 until the abomination of desolation in verse 15. Just a general description. Do you remember those things? You have them on your handout. What should we expect in this time period? Many false prophets, many wars, many famines and pestilences and earthquakes, persecutions and apostasies. I mean, many people leaving the faith. Guys, this has been happening for 2,000 years already. But we learned in the first message they're like birth pains. So all that list of hardship and difficult things... They're like birth pains. They're going to become more and more frequent and more and more intense and severe, like birth pains, over the thousands of years as the end of the age comes up. So verses 4 through 14 are kind of generic view of what to expect. But if you'll remember in that text, Jesus says, but this is not the end. The end is not here. Now in last week's text, then we move forward and then add this week's, and we now know that he's saying this is when you'll know the end is near. Write this thought. So verse 14 to, 4 to 14, lots of general descriptions, difficult things. But verse 15, abomination of desolation. Verse 21 and 22, a very specific great tribulation that follows the abomination of desolation. And these wild things that are happening in verses 29 to 31. Guys, those refer to very specific events, not general descriptions. Very specific events that happen over the last three and a half years of the age. And I believe what the text is saying is when people see those things happening, that abomination of desolation, great tribulation, and the things in verse 29 to 31, then you know you're about to see Jesus' return. That's how I interpret this section. So now look at verse 34. You're writing that long massive, aren't you? Well, you got about 10 words to write. Sorry. And right there, that's probably the first or second longest note we've ever had, but I wanted to encapsulate the three messages into one thought. And then after you're, as you're doing that, very hurriedly, I do need to close up with verse 34 and a very brief thought on 35. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that's the hard verse that causes some to come to some, I think, strange interpretations. So who is this, this generation? First, this is a possible fulfillment. I think this is a possible answer. Who's this generation? Guys, the word, they tell me, I've read multiple places, that the word generation there does not just have to mean a specific group of people at a specific time. It can also mean a kind of people. And so some interpret that as saying this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, all these things are going to happen, but this generation, our people, the Jews, will not be extinct as a people. They will continue. They will exist as a distinct people. Guys, if that is the interpretation, it is actually miraculous. It is a miracle that the nation of Israel has not been extinguished or just absolved into all the other nations as many times as they've been spread around the world with no country. It's a miracle. If that is what the Lord is saying, He says, hey, don't you worry. Jews, you remain a distinct people until the end. Others, obviously, where I started and spent too much time this morning, they believe this generation means A.D. 30, those Jews that Jesus was talking to there, all these things has to happen in their lifetime, and that's why they jump through hoops to make 
Verse 29 to 31 have to fit A.D. 70 because in their mind, it did happen in A.D. 70 and all the bad things that happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. There's was all fulfilled. Nah, verse 29 31 didn't happen. You're making that up. It doesn't fit. But some view it that way. So you say, Jeff, what are you offering? Here, I'm going to offer this. You already saw the clue of it in the long note. So here's, I'm going to put it in a little plainer. I believe that verse, 20, verse 34, this generation means... The generation of people who are alive to see the events of verse 29 to 31. We could even say alive to see verse 15's abomination and verse 21's persecution, great persecution. And in verse 29 to 31, all those things. Whoever is alive to see all of that will also be alive to see Jesus' return. That's what I believe this is saying to us. Can I give you a hint? Why? One more hint. You got your Bible open still? And I'm almost done. You see verse 36? This is next week. Jesus says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but, only, but the Father only. Jesus knows descriptions of what's going to happen. On earth, on earth, Jesus knows. Some people say Jesus wasn't a very good prophet because it didn't happen the way he said in the lifetime of those people. No, he's talking about the generation that sees all these things, they can know their... When you see that happen, it's about to be the end of the age. So that, that's... So, all right. So Jesus knows descriptions of what's going to happen. He doesn't know the timing. So if he doesn't know the timing, why would he say something in such a way that guarantees it has to happen within these people's lifetime? It doesn't fit. He's talking about if you're in this group that sees these things. Last thought, verse 35, and we're done. Very short. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Guys, a lot of people read the words of Jesus and they just come to this conclusion. Maybe somebody's sitting here right now and you're too kind and polite to just leave. And so you're thinking, when I leave after this, I'm never coming back because those people are nuts. All right. Sometimes what Jesus says, let's just admit it, man, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But I challenge you, if you really study out everything he ever said, it always happens. It always ends up happening. There is no temple in Jerusalem, and there's not even any stone stacked upon the other. It happened just like he said. Everything he ever says always happens, just like he says. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will... Guys, what... His point is his word, write this thought, his words, they may seem like extreme, very hard to understand. Man, I don't see how you can take that literally... You better take them to be literal, even when they're extreme, because his words are more reliable than the ground you and I take for granted, the ground you and I just walk on every day. I'm going to tell you right now, guys, not one day of my life have I walked around like this on the ground. Like, where, where are you going? Any moment, this may open up. Hey, it can open up and suck me down. Here's what I know. The day is coming. This world will not be here. But I also know that, and I don't go through life worrying about the earth Jesus is saying, just like you do that, more than that, you should go through life assuming everything I ever tell you is going to happen. You say, why would we assume that? Because it is going to happen. It is going to happen. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Can I encourage you with these final thoughts? Grace View, those of you watching online now or in the future, read your Bible, read your Bible, study it, and when you do, let the Bible say what it says. 
Let the Bible say what it says. Don't feel like you've got to explain away the miraculous or the difficult. You've got to explain away the catastrophic. Just let it say what it says. Grace view. Nothing that we've been talking about today or reading. Now here, this is, this is heavy. This is not a fairy tale. What we've been talking, this is not a fairy tale. This is all a coming reality. This is a reality. This is going to happen. And so I want to encourage you. And anyone in the future who may somehow, some way, see this little sliver of a tape. When trials and difficulty and tribulations and cosmic things are happening. And it seems like the world is coming to an end. And things are happening so much more frequently and more intense than it's ever been. Remember, Jesus tells his people, at that moment, take heart, lift up your head. It's about to get better than it's ever been before. Now, Grace View, in the coming weeks, we've been unpacking what's going to happen for three weeks, and it's been all this teaching. We'll have some more of that, but we're getting ready to transition into our approach. It's going to start being much more practical. What are we to do in light of this? And I know we can start right here. We better start warning people. Judgment is coming. Jesus' words are true. So I leave you with this. Start warning people, praying for people. And oh, by the way, hey, Christian, believer in Jesus, Severe judgments coming on this world the day of the Lord. It'll be very bloody. You ought to thank God that you're not going to be part of it because Jesus already took your punishment for your sin. He already took it all and He saved you and spared your life. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father, thank you for helping us, Lord. Thank you most of all for Jesus as always. We believe his words. Lord, I, I don't know that every word that I said today is true. You know my heart. But Lord, I pray that all of us would at least walk away with the impression that his words are to be taken seriously and they're literal. And that a very great tribulation is coming to this world. And Lord, lay that burden upon our heart. But Lord, fill us with great gratitude that we'll never taste that final wrath of God and that we'll never taste the eternal wrath of God. We, as the song we sang a while ago, we thank you for the blood of Jesus applied. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week.